This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Back here with my buddy Noel Lowe. How you doing? Excellent. The long-awaited Noel Lowe podcast. I've been trying to get this for a while. Yeah, yeah. Now I, I know you through my buddy Bryce, and you guys are business partners. And we'll talk about you guys run some pawn shops. You own pawn shop. You're a pawn broker. Pawn broker. So I want to talk about that. But um, first, I want to talk about when I first met you through Bryce. Uh, this is the first thing I remember hearing about you was you were on the Wasilla City Council when Sarah Palin was mayor. That's correct. So this is like. Long time ago, long, long time ago. So why'd you why'd you decide to? Because when I when I know you, I don't you don't scream to me like I'm going to run for office guy. Uh, prior to that, I was a legislative aide for Representative Jerry Sanders for two sessions in Juneau. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So, Back in the really good old days when Ramona Barnes was the uh, chair, speak, yeah, speaker. Of the yeah. House. So what was that? Well, yeah, you you must have you must have had fun in June. That was back when there was probably a little more money, huh? A little more, a little more fun. Yeah, a little more fun. Although you know, being with uh, Jerry Sanders took some of that fun away because he he uh, he him and Ramona and Bev Masick decided to go against the majority and formed a mini minority. So we basically had a broom closet for an office, and you know, not mm-hmm. a lot, not a lot of love, if you know what I mean. That happens sometimes where people vote, vote a certain way and then they get like out of the caucus or they form their own deal and they aren't even a minority. Like you said, they're kind of like a, like a mini minority. We were, we were, it was like Ramona Barnes, Bev Masick, and Jerry Sanders. It was as many of a mini minority as you so could when get. So was, was that the 90s or? Uh, man, so long ago. Yeah, it would have been in the 90s. So how'd you get like? Let's see, uh, it would have been about 25 years ago. So how'd you get into that? I mean, did you just know Jerry or? Because I don't know him that well, but I, uh, I know of him. I, I never met him, but I. I volunteered to do the financial management of four campaigns that were running simultaneously out in the Valley. And it was, I'm going to struggle with some of these names. It was Bev Masick, Lida Green, Vic Coring. Oh, wow. And ah, can't remember the fourth one. But anyways, I did their, uh, all their checking accounts and APOC reports and all of that stuff. Um, And, at the end of that, Tuckerman Babcock recruited me to be a legislative aide for Jerry Sanders. Cause Tuckerman he, recruited you? Yeah, because he knew no I, shit. He knew I was a computer whiz bang database guy, and he was like, "Oh, you know, I'm sure." So, so Tuckerman married Lida's uh, uh, daughter, right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. So he, he's married to Christy Babcock. Okay, is, is, is Lida's daughter? So yeah, Tuck, Lida's his mother-in-law. Wow, I didn't realize you had a Tuckerman connection. Yep, Tuckerman recruited me after doing that for those guys because you know he saw that I had a lot of computer skills, and so then I went down and uh, I could not even imagine you as a legislative aide. I couldn't even. I can't even imagine. Oh, it. I was good at it. Plus, you know, I was one of those legislative aides that you could have go to the meeting, mm-hmm. take, you know, take all the notes and then come back, and you know, I was pretty functional. Because I spent the last two years in Juno, and you got some of the. Some of the staffers, you know, they're, they're the ones that can go to the meeting and kind of yeah. interact with folks. But some of them, you want to, they just kind of stay in the office. They never leave. You, yeah. you never see them, really. Yep. Yeah. No, I did a lot of frontman stuff for Jerry. 
And, is he still uh, around? I don't. I know the name. Is he still around or no? Man, it's been probably 15 years since I've run into him. So I, I don't know what he's doing these days. So you also worked at. Now this is how I know you from my fr- our friend Bryce. You worked at Network Business Systems NBS, and I worked there way, way, way after you. And yep. I worked at this other IT firm, and then I ended up going to NBS in 2013. But you were there like way before that with working I did, with Bryce. I did two stints at NBS. Um, when I got hired there the first time, it was my first wife, Rhonda was their dispatcher. She was, uh, you know, one that sent the text out mm-hmm. and coordinated all the schedules and they were looking for a salesperson. And, uh, I applied, got the job, worked for them for, I want to say like four years, five years, then took another it job for CompuCom worked for CompuCom for probably two years, then came back and worked for MBS a second time as the sales manager. So when I got in IT, I started in 2010. I worked for Tech Us. I don't know if you heard of them, yeah. the small no, company. I remember those guys. And I, probably like you, I had no, I had zero tech background at all, period. But the owner knew me and he kind of knew, oh, I knew people. Yep. So was that the same deal with you? You didn't really know IT, but you knew how to kind of um, sell stuff or did you know? I had like a little bit of computer programming background and some basic, you know, PC mechanic background, you know, but no network experience, no business IT experience, but just you know, lots of sales experience. So what did you, did you just talk to folks, cold call, all that? Yeah. I mean, you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had worked a couple short careers by then in sales, and uh, that was definitely my forte. So it didn't take me long. I think I was there for two months, and I had surpassed Dick Jablonowski's sales, and Dick, I wouldn't still... let him go on any of my meetings after that because, you know. He's, he's, still, he's still around, too. He's... Oh, he is a, he's a giant. I have a lot of respect for him. I've seen him do some amazing sales deals yeah no he, he's uh he's incredible so oh, plus he knows every single person in alaska that has anything to do with it i mean and it's crazy look at the guy still he's probably almost oh. like 80 he looks like he's like 60 right i think I mean, he's, the guy, climbed, the guy's like, machi- he's climbed mountains all over the world the himalayas he told me this wild story that he was in i think it was in iran or F, he was in iran before the revolution yeah, not and surprising. He, he was just in like a bus or something or <laughs> right, a van. I'm sure. And he was talking about how he was in Afghanistan. This is all in the 70s, you know, before like shit blew up I, over there. I, somewhere in my mind, I have this picture of Dick Jablonowski with like super long hair and like a bandana with like a joint in his hand. And for, and for the listeners, this guy is like 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 very like conservative looking. Conservative. Yeah, just kind of, you know, business guy. But, but to hear about his like mountain climbing and world travels, I just like in my mind, there's this like totally different image I have of him. The, the best part about MBS, MBS when I was there, um, Scott Thorson, he sold it to Annette and Melissa, who are, who are awesome. But they were probably there when you were there, right? AJ and Melissa? Yeah. So they bought it. But but Scott was, uh, man, what a character he was. Oh, man. With Scott, it was funny because Scott was so into the, he lives in Australia. When I was in Australia, I was down there with him. We spent, um, Easter, April 2017 together. He was out there basically just surfs all day. But he he's as old, like he's a pilot. He was a pilot for Reeve. Yep. Uh, and then he was like in the stock, stock broker. Yep. But he started NBS. And, but he's huge in the resource development world and like yep. politics. So I don't know about you, but with me, with him, we had like a weekly sales meeting. And it was basically just him like talking about like politics. Like <laughs> I always knew that if I ever didn't want to have my sales meeting, like let's say I, I hadn't done enough cold calling or my pipeline wasn't full enough, it was so easy to get him off topic and then spend the entire you know hour talking about that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I did it regularly. I, I don't even know. Like, I, I don't really recall ever having a real actual, I mean, there'd be like five minutes of what are you working on, what's going on, and then it's like, like did you hear about this like damn initiative they're trying to push? Or oh, yeah, totally. This, this thing happening or this person. Oh, you just bring up airplanes and Scott would talk for an hour. Yeah, yeah, and he had great stories too. He, he, he did. He, I think he flew the um, the Electra thing. 
Yeah, he what? has he's he has a lot of adventures for sure. He's down there in Australia, man. He's just surfing and he's remarried and he's just kind of living. The, he has this nice house and it's that, really that was the thing that blew me away more than anything with Scott was that he always portrayed like his deep, deep, deep love and affection for his wife and mm-hmm. what an amazing woman she was and all we ever heard was just like how much he revered her and then like poof told the company out <laughs> yeah like and I. I I just heard that, like, where's Scott? Oh, he left the country. <laughs> like, what? No, he, he, he's, he's, he's immigrated. I mean, he's, he's over there. He's got, he's got the whole thing. Wow. Um, so how did you, and this is kind of how I really, when I first met you, you were already in the pawn business. Mm-hmm. So you, own, you run the Alaska Fast Cash. Yep. Now, you and Bryce have the Anchorage one, but you have the Fairbanks Wasilla one, right? Yep. So you started the one in Wasilla? Yep, started in Wasilla in 07. I had some friends that had been in the pawn business for a long time. I had recently got married. My wife, Sandy, and I were like, we're going to do something. We're going to start a business. We're not going to, like, get up every day and go our separate ways and, you know, get into nine-to-fives and then come back and be like, what would you do today? Uh-huh. So we decided we were going to start a business. We had a dozen lame business ideas. Uh, how, did you it, set, how, did, how did you settle on pawn shop? That is just the it is an interesting story. most random business to settle on, if, especially if you have no experience with it. I had a friend who had uh, – his dad had been in the business for a number of years. He worked at his dad's shop. And we hung out a lot, and I was telling him about all the business ideas that me and my wife had come up with. And it was like... What were some of the ideas? uh, Man, you know, we looked into franchises for, like, lingerie stores. (laughs) You know, like a Victoria's Secret. Yeah, or something like that, or... Uh, and then uh, kidney dialysis center, you know, because her grandpa had gone through dialysis mm-hmm. and she had attended almost all of his dialysis sessions. I have a friend him. right now; his wife's going through that, and I mean, yeah. it's basically three days a week. You're there, you're there like all day, and and she would go with him, and she would spend hours just watching TV with him, or reading with him, or just whatever. And uh, so she had some exposure to that, and that was one of the ideas we talked about. But uh, when when I was sharing that idea with my friend, he was like, "Man, that sounds like a depressing way to make a living," you know, just spend all day every day with people that are kind of dying mm-hmm. and i hadn't really thought about that aspect of it and um i used to work with this i was at cal worthington selling cars yeah and then we had I this did guy yeah we had this guy i worked there for a year in 05 when i right after i moved here i was 20 and this guy was there and he was a he was a really good car salesman and i got to know him and he was on my team sean was his name and and he was a good car salesman one day we were all talking and he had done a really, he had a pretty good month. And I said, wow, you're doing pretty good. He's like, yeah, no, I'm, it's great. But he's like, not nearly as much as I used to make. And I was like, what'd you, what'd you used to, like, what'd you used to do? And he was an insurance salesman and he was telling me how much he made. And it was like a lot. I was like, fuck. I was like, why'd you quit that? He's like, you want to, you want to know the truth? He's like, I got sick of being in the meetings with like the couple and like telling like the, the, the wife, like now when your husband dies and he will die, he's going to die. And like basically scaring people into buying this shit. Sure. He's like, I got so like distraught and just like sick to my stomach every day when I'm talking to these people trying to sell them this stuff. I just quit. And then he started selling cars, but that's one of those jobs where you're like every day you're like, you have to tell people depressing shit about their demise. Sure. They're all like, I'm good, man. I'm good. Like, no, you're not. You're not, you're, you're, you're going to die. Good. And when you, die. when you die, when you want your wife to be poor and have no money and have, have no insurance, you, right. you want that? You want that? Sign here. <laughs> exactly. Jesus. Yeah. I had a life insurance sales or whatever you got the series seven. I passed all that one time. Oh yeah. Really? Yep. My wife uh, was doing it, and uh, I was starting to tell a friend about it one day, and somebody overheard the conversation, and they're like, are you licensed? And I said, no. And they're like, well, you're not allowed to talk about that stuff. I'm like, come on, man. My wife does this. I'm just helping her out. And he was like, no, it's serious. You can't talk about that stuff. You're not licensed. And so I studied for like a week, passed all the deals, 
got my license deal. And I wanted to name the insurance company Low Life Insurance. Oh my God. Low, yes. I love that. You ever, you ever pursue that or no? No, no. You, you ever, you ever deal with these New York life people? Yes. So I, I have this like aversion to anybody and I don't, you know, make, I, make, I have a, I have a large New York life, life insurance policy, but these people who work there and I know a lot of them, they, they will run these like schemes and these tricks. And the most elaborate one I ever had was I used to be involved in the community council. I was president of my community council. And I think we all kind of know if you're in, in like at all the business world, you know, if a New York life guy like wants to set up a meeting, he's trying to sell you insurance, right? We all know that for sure. And they, some of them are pretty clever about how they do it. So this guy messages me and he's like, Hey, I want to get involved in the community councils. I, I see your president and I see you're involved in the federation, of community councils. So I go, yeah, sure. So we have coffee. We're at uh, black cup or cafe del mundo at the time in Anchorage. And we're, I'm telling him, here's, here's where you live. Here's your council. Here's how you get involved. Here's what you can do. Here's basically just giving him the tutorial on like how to be involved in the community council. And then like 30 minutes into it, he's like, I really appreciate you, you uh, meeting with me. But the, the reason I really wanted to talk to you is I'm a New York life. And I never knew he was a New York life because he messaged me on Facebook. And he's like, I'm really like, really want to talk to you about like your future. I said, holy fuck, man. Like, cause I'm pretty good at sussing these ones out. Oh, me too. You can usually tell like, Hey man, I'm not interested, but thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's like some kind of cult over there. I mean, they they like must train people to manipulate like the cl- people to get them into a meeting. For sure. Oh, absolutely. I got <laughs> duped into going to an Amway meeting like that one time and I can spot an Amway salesman a mile away. And, uh, this guy was talking about a business opportunity and, you know, he, and, intentionally made it sound like the opposite of what Amway was. So I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I'll go to this meeting. I go to there. First thing I see is the whiteboard. Next thing you know, the dude gets the black marker and he draws like the first circle on the board. Oh God. And I'm like, Amway, I'm out of here. <laughs> and I got up, I turned around. I was like, I hope you guys all know you're in an Amway meeting. I'm out. So it was like somebody's house. Yeah. 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 I think one of the, this is like many, many years ago. I uh, was at a friend's ho- apartment. This is like, 15 years ago and it was apartment complex here in Anchorage and I heard some noise and it was like really loud and it was laughter and it was like it was like it was um below us and I was like what the hell's going on down there it was a party partying what is it? it was a Friday it was a Friday night so I go down there and I'm like just curious I'm like hey what's what's in knock and knock and there's a bunch of women in there like 30 women right maybe 20 women and I go what the hell's going on like what are, what are you guys doing like what's going on and they were having have you heard of these pleasure parties I have so these women they sell these sex toys right it's a billion dollar business but I mean, it was, it was like, I was, I was like, wow. It was the first time I ever like exposed that thing. I was like 22 maybe or something. Were they like, come on in. We want to sell you some stuff. No, they weren't. They were just like, it was kind of like, you know, get out of here. But I was like, what's going on? Like what's, I hear this laughter and they were like, we're having a pleasure party. And I was like, what the hell is a pleasure party? And then this <laughs> lady had this, they showed me, it was like a, like a suitcase. Suitcase. Yeah. Like a briefcase thing of like full of like all of it, you know? Uh, and, and I mean, I, I actually met years later, I met a friend that was um, doing that. And she was she was making like 150 grand doing that. Incredible. Just having just getting women together, having parties, selling it. <laughs> Let's get the wine flowing and oh yeah, break I out mean, just the pleasure toys. Just think about it. I mean, this, those you see how much those things cost. They aren't they aren't 20 bucks, you know. They're hundreds of dollars. It's incredible. It's a great business. Anyway, right. so how'd you get into the pond? Now, or, maybe we should open up a company. I think probably I'm just guessing that it's probably a female dominated sales industry. I don't. Could you imagine? Being, oh, totally. Being like a dude. Like, yeah. hey, you guys yeah. want to come you over? For a pleasure party? I don't think they would. I don't think so. I don't think you'd get a lot of cl- clients no. or yeah. customers. So how'd you get into the pond? Like, what, what, how'd that? So I was explaining to my friend, you know, all the business ideas, and he was like, lame, lame, depressing. And then he was like, you should open a pawn shop. And I didn't give it 
two seconds worth of thought because I'd been in his pawn shop a lot. And, you know, at the time I was wearing three piece suits at work and dressing up nice. And, and I just didn't, I had maybe the same stereotype that a lot of people have in their mind of what a pawn shop is. So I didn't even really take it serious. And then like maybe only a year later, he built this beautiful home, paid mostly cash for it. And I was asking him about his loan, you know, because I was going to refinance my house at the time. And he, it was just super small. And I'm like, why'd you do that? And he was like, well, I'm in the pawn business. And I'm like, okay, explain it to me again. I'm listening this time. I'm paying attention. He explained it. And uh, I realized that it was a great business opportunity. And I kind of liked garage sales and stuff. And, you know, not at that time, it wasn't eBay, but, you know, just buying and selling because selling was my thing. And that just seemed to me like buying and selling. I'm not even sure at that point I really totally grasped how much of the business was going to be based on loans, you know, because in my mind, I'm still looking at the pawn shop and seeing like a thrift store, Uh but a thrift store that does really well. So we started taking the idea serious and uh, I was really good at Excel from all of my, you know, time spent at MBS doing complicated sales proposals. So I whipped up with help from Bryce a simulator, basically a pawn shop simulator in Excel. And I started plugging in, you know, all the numbers and revenue forecasts and the expense part, which was easy. And then we just started running scenarios and it became obvious to me that, you know, that was a good return on investment as good as any of the other businesses that I had looked at. So this guy didn't, he, he, he didn't care if you were a competitor or was he? And that was one of the, that was one of the cool things. You know, he, he knew I was looking to open up a shop in Wasilla And uh, I ended up selecting a location that was only six miles away from his shop. And he helped me not only in sort of like the beginning, just thinking about it, but I would call him during the day sometimes and be like, hey, how much do I loan on a Usyk? You know, what's that worth? Mm -hmm. I don't know what that's worth. So he didn't care at all that you were like a competitor. Nope. You know, and his attitude was... He's still around in the business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's the J&M Lee Bennick. They own A1 Pond. Helped us out quite a bit in the beginning. Wow, what a guy. It was. It was really nice. Usually people you'd think would be like, hey, don't, don't get, it's my business, you know. Uh, His attitude, and I agree with him now that I've been in the business for a long time, was that I'm going to have a competitor. You know, there's going to be another pawn shop Uh in town. It might as well be somebody that I'm friendly with, somebody where we can refer, you know, customers to one another. And for 10 years, you know, if I didn't have what a customer was looking for, they 100% of the time got sent to A1 Pond. So I think I want to talk about two things is is the history. And I didn't know this until you brought it up, but. Um, but before like credit was huge with banks and stuff, what, pawn shops were a big part of American history, right? Until as the, far as until the fifties, when you know digital money or credit cards became started to take off, pawn shops were the number one source of consumer lending in our country. Wow. Yeah, but there wasn't really a direct consumer lending market. You know, people just didn't walk into their bank and borrow a hundred dollars. You know, and still today, banks don't loan you $100. But if you got a credit card, you can essentially borrow $100 uh-huh. anytime you want. So that was a big change in consumer lending that occurred, I think, like around 52 or something like that. So wh- why do you, and you mentioned this earlier, and I think a lot of people hear pawn shop and they get this negative mm-hmm. image or idea. Why, why do you, why, because I mean, I've known you and Bryce and being around the pawn shop. I mean, I, I see it as, uh, especially I was, before I went to Australia, remember I left, I got let go from my job at GCI and then I was kind of, in the, like a lull moment. And then you guys needed some help in the store at anchor. So I actually helped out for like six weeks. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's what I noticed about you guys and I've never been, been other, you know, pawn shops spend time there, but you guys treat everybody. And that's kind of your, th- your kind of mantra. I think treat everybody, you know, 
with with respect, like like a, like they're they're buying a car, buying a house. You know, right. treat, treat them the same. Well, early in my sales career, I worked for Nordstrom's for I want to say like three years, and I went through Nordstrom's customer service training, and so and then worked in Nordstrom's and sort of experienced firsthand, you know, how that works when you treat people really good, they spend money. I mean, Nordstrom's has got that figured out. You get uh-huh. customer loyalty by exceeding people's expectations in terms of the customer service that they're going to receive. And Nordstrom's just, you know, that was part of the training. I, I heard stories of somebody who returned tires at Nordstrom's. Didn't even buy them there. But they took them back, gave, you know, and took care of the customer. And, uh, you know, it's, oh, thanks. Well, it's probably not true, but it's just, you know, it's an example of sort of how far they're willing to go to make sure that every customer has yeah, a good experience. Too bad they closed. I used to love getting my suits there and my stuff. And oh, man. man. I had Sam. You remember Sam? I didn't know Sam well. I yeah. worked with Sam. I just so kind of sad that thing happened that way. Terrible. So, so why do you think there's that? Do you think some Hollywood, some of them are shitty or some uh, of them are bad? Nah, or just I mean, a lot of it came from Hollywood. You know, if you go back and look at all the movies and the movie references that pawn shops are in, it's always like a fence. They're always taking stolen property in there. Some dude behind a metal grate who knows he's buying stolen stuff. And that's just how yeah, Hollywood, that's, that's, true. that's how Hollywood portrayed pawn shops for a lot, a lot of years. So when you guys have and talking to, to Bryce, when you guys get like high end goods, mm-hmm. you can't just I mean, you have to. Uh, Log, I mean, you have to log them. If somebody comes, if the cops come in and say, hey, do you guys have this? You have to have a, you have, a, you guys have a whole pretty, pretty good computer system. Oh, every of, transaction is, you know, fully digital transaction. There's no paper pawn log. Uh, all the transactions are sent to the police department in their totality, you know, right down to the serial number, the name, the person that pawned it. Um, so there's this, <coughs> excuse me, a direct connection with law enforcement. So if something shows up in our store that's stolen, Within 24 hours, the police are coming over to get it. So do you lose money if you buy something stolen? Do you have to give it, turn it over? And- we're out temporarily the money because we're a secondary victim. You know, they didn't tell us it was stolen. We make them sign a contract saying that it's not stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we've been taken for whatever money. Let's say we give $50 for an item. We don't get the 50 bucks back when the police confiscate the item. So we end up having to sue the thief get a judgment and go through the normal small claims process, which is it's probably a mess, huh? It's almost not worth doing. You know, the average pawn loan is pretty small. So, you know, yeah, what's, it, what's the, like, cause what's the, what's the average pawn loan? Our average loans a hundred bucks. Wow. So you think about it, you think like people are going for big, like a thousand dollar, five, $5,000. The max loan you can borrow in Alaska on a pawn is $750. But the average loan is a hundred dollars. We the do ma- the max tremendous volumes of, $20 loans. So the max is 750 Yes. What about, no, on on the, the, isn't there some top end thing where over some amount you can do the higher, like the mm-hmm. high end loan, like the 20, like t- t- over 25 grand or something? Can't nope. you do? The pawn statute covers loans from $750 and down. And that's the hundred percent of what's in a pawn shop or the pawn statutes. Okay. So when you first got into it now, I mean, I bet you now you can spot kind of somebody trying to pull a fast one a mile away. It's it's always funny when we open a new store. We have four stores, two in Anchorage, one in Wasilla, and one in Fairbanks. And every time you open a new store, first people through the door are all the criminals or people that have addiction issues who are like, man, this guy doesn't know me. All the other shops know me. This guy doesn't know me. Oh, uh, okay. And then and so they're, boom, they're on the scene trying to pawn stuff that's not theirs. And you sort them out pretty quick. And then, you know, with our software, we just – click the box that says, you know, not permitted to do business huh. here. And if you ever pawn an item in our store that's stolen and 
you know, we find out that you pawn a stolen item. We're done doing business with you forever. We check the box, you're done. So how, how much of the business is like the, you know, pawning and somebody gives you an item, you loan, and then how much of it is just, hey, I want to I sell this to you guys. I want, you know. Um, I would say 75% of the uh, transactions on that are going to be pawned and maybe 25% of the people are looking to sell the item and get completely out of it. And then the other side of the business is the retail sales. Yeah. I was going to say how many people are just coming in to buy stuff? A lot. You know, we probably do a third of our revenue from pawn loans, a third of our revenue from retail sales and a third of our revenue from payday loans. So some of the stuff you guys have in the store, like the Anchorage store, and I've been to the Wasilla one, you guys have, I mean, you have a lot of stuff. We do. So at some point, um, are you pretty selective on kind of what you're looking to take in? Or are you pretty pretty liberal about, hey, we, we, we get a good item, we'll, we'll, we'll do a loan? Or I tell my employees all the time, I'll loan money on a number two lead pencil if I think I can sell it if you don't come back. So, and and so how, we want to help the customer who's looking for a loan. So when somebody walks in and is trying to borrow money, we are going to do everything in our power to make sure that their need gets met. So, you know, if let's say, we, you know, they have an item that we – we do think that we could sell that would make good collateral. We'll go ahead and do the loan. If they don't, then we're trying to figure out what they have that would make good collateral. So, you know, if you don't have, or you bring us something that's broken or defective, or we reject it for any reason, we're like, well, do you have one of these? Do you have one of mm -hmm. these? Is there something else we can do to help you get the loan that you need today? So how does it work? So you, you pawn an item and you have a period of time mm -hmm. to retrieve it or it's to... a 30, it's a 30 day loan with an automatic 30 day extension. So, you do the loan, your first payment's due in 30 days. If you don't make that, you get another 30-day grace period. And at the end of 60 days, if you don't show up to make a payment, then you uh, forfeit your ownership in the collateral. So and oftentimes, we wait weeks, months, you know, for good customers. I mean, I've had people go seven months, no payment, and then come in and pay me back. You so, know, you, so you have the stuff, I assume, like in the back where mm -hmm. it's not for sale. Yep. And then as soon as it does... Uh, yeah, when we'll we go over time, you can you can put it out for for sale. Whenever we make the loan default decision, you know whether it's the day of sixty days or whether it's you know six months down the road, we make the default decision. And it goes out on the floor for sale. What's the coolest thing you've ever bought? Oh my goodness! I mean, I, I, it's probably a big question, but like, I mean, I, I like gold nuggets, and I've bought a lot of gold nuggets in thirteen years, so that's pretty cool. Um, we get amazingly interesting stuff. Yeah, what's the know? weirdest thing? You have something stick out? Oh, like we, a... We've had people pawn stripper poles. We've had, what? Yeah. <laughs> we, we've had people pawn scuba gear, parachutes, hang gliders. That's uh, unbelievable variety. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the job. I mean, you show up to work. Um, you know, most retail businesses, they decide, what do my customers want to buy? okay, I'm going to go find a wholesale market. I'm going to buy those. Uh -huh. I'm going to put them in the back. I'm going to put them on the floor. And then I'm going to hope somebody comes in and buys it. You know, we're a store that has no idea what our inventory is going to be 30 days from now. Because it just comes through the door all day long, like a constant garage sale that comes to you. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, 25% of those people are just wanting to sell their item and get out of it. The rest of them want to do a loan and want to get it back. And our... Our business is built around them getting the item back. You know, I wouldn't want to buy all the things that we do loans on because I'd have way more inventory than I could sell. We actually want 75, 80% of our customers to redeem their loan, get the collateral back. Now, you guys have a lot of guns. Is guns a big, pretty big part of the business? Yeah, it is. I would say, you know, 40%-ish of wow, the that much, business huh? surrounds guns. And that's, you know... That's the pawning of them, buying of them, 
selling guns, you know, so there's revenue from both sides. But altogether, guns is a pretty big, pretty big part of the business. So you guys, I assume, have a ton of folks who are kind of like, how many people do you have that are like, hey, if you get this and call me? A lot. So you, you have to like manage that or track that? So Our we... software has a wish list. So if any of our oh, customers okay. are looking for something in particular, we just go to their account, say, hey, he's looking for a Ruger LC9. And then the very second a Ruger LC9 hits our floor, it sends a text message to that customer and uh, notifies us. Oh, so you don't even have to do it. You're, it just the system does it for you. That's, that's that's great. Yeah, it's cool. What's the what's the biggest like burn you've ever got? Like maybe somebody bought something they shouldn't have bought, or uh, it, it was like 14 days after we opened, um, and we we started out doing check cashing along with all the other financial services. So a guy comes in with a check. I want to say it was like 4,800 dollar check. And, you know, our fee for cashing that check was going to be $800. And uh, I think I was so excited about, you know, making $800 to cash a check, which is a pretty simple deal. You know, you give the guy the money, you go deposit the check Uh in your account. It's good. And 800 seemed like, you know, I'm hitting a home run. And uh, we cashed the check. I don't know. It was like five minutes later. Uh, somebody called in and said their checkbook was stolen. And this guy had wrote a check on the stolen oh, checkbook. God. So it wasn't even his checkbook. So, you know, we were out the whole $4,800 or I guess it'd be $4,000 that we gave him. And uh, so I didn't make my $800. So you got, now you're, you're part of the check cashing shop too with, with Bryce. Yep. So that, the one thing I've asked Bryce about, he, you guys bought that from, from like a, like two couples, right? That ran yep. it for a long time. Yep. I'm still amazed that that's a business, like that's a need for that business. And talk about why people, do they just not have bank accounts? Or do it, they... I think it's... Because um, there's a lot of folks who are needing, needing check cashing, right? I think the check cashing service is very related to the pawn service or the payday loan service. Maybe not so much the payday loan service, but the pawn and the check cashing are kind of similar. There's a large percentage of the population, and I don't know exactly what it is, but that are underbanked. They either um, have never had a bank account uh, or... They take their paycheck and they just cash it at the, the maker's account, but they don't bank. And so when they need... When they, could, they could go to the bank of issue, right? They could cash it there. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not sure exactly why they don't go to the bank of issue, but um, we cash a lot of checks. We, um, we cash a lot of, like, dividend checks, uh, native shareholder checks, uh-huh. um, corporate payroll checks. I mean, the bulk of the check cashing that we do... What's the biggest check you ever got? God, I want to say we've cashed forty and eighty thousand dollar checks. So the, the, now nowadays you can pretty much call and ver- you can verify that it's it's. But you guys did didn't you guys get burned once on some on some check? I think Bryce was saying we had a very small a fake check. I think wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I want to say it was like maybe twelve thousand bucks or something like that. That's not small. Well, Ooh. it was it was Ooh. a series of checks that was cashed at multiple stores by a little group that was running a check cashing scheme for a minute, but. Um, for the most part, our defaulted checks are extremely low because we're cashing checks from local businesses that have been in business for a long time. You know, we have employees from particular businesses that choose to cash their checks with us and have been cashing their checks with us for 10 years. And we, I did a podcast with Bryce and the, the lawyer. What's his name? Uh, Jeff, right? Barber. Yeah, Jeff Barber. So we did a podcast a while back, and we could talk a little bit about that. But, man, this is just a wild story. And if the folks are listening, go back to the Bryce Coriel Jeff Barber podcast. Um, but this, this guy in this Alaska, was Alaska waste uh-huh. or he just, he slammed into your building. This is like five years ago, wasn't it? Yep. And I remember cause I was working and I mean, it was like big news. I mean, it was on the news and, and oh, this our, dude, our this office was basically completely scattered across fifth Avenue. Like a bomb went off in our building. And you guys are on fifth by, by uh, lucky wishbone directly across the street. So th- this, 
truck just slammed. I mean, a big garbage truck slammed into the building, and it. I mean, it was amazing. It was Nobody stuck got hurt inside the building. It went through all the interior walls of the yeah. building, all the way to the back wall, yeah. and it was right the half of the truck was in the end wall to the building. So as it was going through the building, it was taking out all the studs that were in the end wall. Mm-hmm. And so basically the truck looked like it was holding up the end of the building. And your employee happened to be not in the, like she happened to luckily not be there, right? She, no, she, we had a customer in the waiting area, which was the first wall that it went through, but he was just far enough to the left that the debris hit him and the truck didn't. But wasn't she supposed to, if she would have been somewhere else, she would have She would have been typically standing directly on the other side of a glass uh case and she had gone and did she, that would have put her in between two walls and you know she would have gotten squished she went around behind the back wall to make a phone call to verify funds on the check or something and then the truck ended up hitting that wall but it flicked her backwards and oh didn't God. pin her between two walls and uh, she said when she woke up she thought that we'd had an earthquake and that the building had collapsed on her and then she kind of opened her eyes and she just was looking at the tread of the tire and she could hear the motor running on the truck and she realized what had happened. And then she remembered that we had a customer in the showroom. She ran immediately out to the showroom and he was buried under a pile of ceiling tiles. And I think he had a, some kind of injury to his nose, but nothing, you know, serious. So we did the podcast on this, but long story short, they didn't want to pay anything. They offered us $15,000. And, but you guys, you guys have, you know, you're, you're not dumb. So you guys actually are some of the People that actually pursue a lawsuit. Most people can't afford it. They don't want to deal with it, whatever. Um, and in the discovery, the wildest thing happened in the deposition was the driver had been injured that day at work, still kept driving. He didn't make it four miles from, he heard, he heard from his, where he injured his foot. He heard his foot on the, mach- on the, on the truck, he, right? He dropped and, the forklifts. Um, this was like a, a flatbed truck that picked up large dumpsters. And stuck him on the back. And this dumpster that was on the back of it had been full of concrete. It was super heavy. Anyways, he dropped the forks on his foot because the fork controls were backward from the truck he'd been driving the previous day. He spent like 20 minutes self-assessing his injury. So he knew it was serious. He never called work and let them know. that. And he, he should have called based on their, their policy. Their policy yeah. is no matter how small the accident, you reported immediately. So he, he never called in and then uh, ended up trying to make it, you know, back to the yard and passed out from shock and went through our building completely unconscious. So you guys pursue this lawsuit and it's a long time and it's you guys hire an economist from UA a yeah. statistician to show the day. Cause you guys were out of, I mean, you had to like move next door and you were pretty much kind of six months basically out. out. Of, you were losing customers cause they saw, Oh my God, what the hell is this thing? Yeah. So you, you were looking at the, the long-term loss of revenue and all these impacts and, um, and you guys other podcasts, we talk all about this, but long story short, um, you go to court and, and it's the judge. It's just a judge, no jury, right? It's just a, you guys yep. agreed on the judge. Yep. And at some point they started to play ball and you guys, there was a pretty big you know, offer. Now my question, and I asked Bryce this, do, do you, do you wish you kind of would have rolled the dice? Cause you could have got maybe a lot more or maybe a lot less, right? You, you really have no way of knowing what the judge would do. The way that it worked out was that the, the last offer that we tendered that they accepted I think it was three hundred seventy-five thousand or somewhere right. And was there. the original fifteen thousand? Yes. I mean, this is like insane. I mean, how yeah, many oh, people? How many people do you think just get screwed by in these whatever it's this well, or any kind of situation where the big guy offers and says, "Well, if you don't take it or leave it." And they lied. In our original discovery request, we sent over asking them for any and all medical treatments that he sought the day of, during, and after, and he had his foot was treated. 
and they specifically never in the discovery handed over any documentation well, of the injury to his foot. When you heard about, when, when you deposed the driver, when you guys, when you first heard this story about this injury, were you like, holy fuck? Well, it's, it's actually interesting. Um, some of my friends work with him and knew about his injury to his foot, told me, and then I told my lawyer, when you're deposing him, you got to find out what happened to his foot. Okay, so you already knew a little bit or something. We knew that the foot injury existed, but after I had told my lawyer about the foot injury, he re-requested discovery and received no discovery back. So they were still trying to hide it. And then the driver brings it up during the deposition because my lawyer says, well, hey, you have a fainting disorder. You fainted, and you just applied for a new commercial driver's license and there's a question on there do you have a fainting disorder why didn't you check that box and he's like i don't have a fainting disorder well why did you faint he's like well i was in shock from crushing my foot oh my god so he was trying to defend his ability to continue having a cdl and finally like spoke up and told the truth about what had happened so when you got to this point of this big offer i mean this is you guys are still going you guys are still going back and forth with with them you could have gone to the judgment we had because my understanding is you and, and the statistician, your team kind of was was just destroyed their their side. We came up during with the, during we the came trial. up with I want to say, and this is all from memory, but we came up with somewhere in the high fives, low six hundred thousand range for past, current, and future economic damage, mm-hmm. and the settlement that we eventually landed on covered all past and current economic damage. So, you know, we had a choice to make of, you know, make us whole for everything that we're out today. And I mean, 100% whole for everything or roll the dice, go for a larger number that represented future economic damage, but potentially risk not getting made whole. And this is up to the judge. It would have been up to the judge. One guy. So, yeah. So, and I'm I'm happy with the decision we made. Ultimately we were made whole for all of the economic loss we'd had and, um, I just think, like I said before, on the bigger picture of, of how many people get in situations like yeah. this, whether it's medical or any kind of malpractice or, or just, you know, just uh, people, people doing something bad, you know, companies and, and then not the people not having the recourse or the ability to. Oh, they get intimidated out of like seeking their redress and being made whole. Because you guys had to pay. I mean, the, like the statistician guy wasn't cheap. No, it wasn't no, free. He, no. he was and he, he was the one who kind of figured out here's how, how much impact this is going to have over over the you know next 10 years yep. based on the loss of current revenue we see since the accident. Yep, his biggest contribution was on calculating future economic loss because it was easy to look at the financials um and see you know what we had lost year to date or to the date of the lawsuit. Um but calculating what you're going to lose that you haven't actually got yet and then documenting that and proving that was really difficult and I think part of the reason that we didn't go for it was his explanation was kind of difficult to follow. I mean, he was a pretty deep-thinking mathematician Mm -hmm. and statistical guy, and I wasn't sure that the judge, because I was having a hard time following it. The other side had their own kind of guy too, right? They did, but um, his analysis was really weak, and we did a very good job of taking that apart because he was trying to defend the $15,000 number. And, you know, he was using some, you know, funky math to do that. So, so they, they, my understanding is, didn't they say their original explanation or their excuse was act of God? Yeah. In, in Alaska, if you are not negligent, you are not liable. So if, you know, if you pass out and you didn't have any plan to pass out, no knowledge that you were going to pass out, you don't have a seizure disorder and you just pass out and you cause an accident. If you're not negligent, you're not liable for the damage. 
was an act of God. And I had never heard that before that. I, I really figured, you know, ultimately, whatever caused it, your truck ran through my store. I don't care what caused <laughs> it. <you know? laughs> yeah, who gives a shit? I mean, right. I mean, you're you on, did it. Yeah, right. You did it. Um, but the truth is, you have to prove negligence. I guess in the whole thing, the only maybe, and I hate to say silver lining, but, you know, if it was some random guy in a truck with no, without a company, without oh, yeah. any kind of... You know, at that point, you're just out. Yeah, these guys no were part of a billion-dollar publicly traded company. I think they're self-insured. You know, it was nothing for them to write the check once we established they needed to. Wow. So now you guys are getting into, I assume, does it get busier in the holidays or people buying stuff or pawning um, stuff? or The pawn shop's always busy. You know, it's money's going one way or the other. You know, if it's a time of year uh, when people, a lot of seasonal workers are out of season, so that would be a borrowing time of the year. You know, as we're approaching winter, I think a lot of our blue-collar clientele that don't work during the winter use us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly a seasonality to, like, the selling season for our, our products and inventory for Christmas and Thanksgiving, you know, shopping season that starts there. You guys have one, especially in the Anchorage store, you guys have one amazing um, feature or, or, or a list of or kind of a bucket of goods is the DVDs. Oh, yeah. Holy fuck. How many DVDs do you have? Blu-rays? I, I, I mean, think we have a, probably 10,000 at each store. When I was work when I was working there for a few months before I went to Australia, I was kind of helping out, and I actually organized the DVDs by alphabetical. <laughs> I don't even know if they're still like. I mean, they probably aren't, but it took me like days, like uh, days, to do this because I mean they were all over the place, and you know you had to uh, c- combine them, and then there was popular ones, and there was ones where there's one DVD for that weird movie, so it was like Blu-ray, you got like Saw Four, and there's fifty five of them. Yeah, and then some of them you have, like, like Prometheus or, you know, old school, whatever it is. You have, like, 20 of them. Yep. And then some of them, you know, you're like, you haven't seen this movie for 30 years. Like, I didn't even know this was on DVD. It's definitely one of the things that uh, I did not expect when I got into the pawn business, that people would bring in DVDs and get a loan on them. What's, what are you loan? Like, a good couple bucks? I mean, 25 cents a movie. I, mean, I was working, I was when I was helping out, we were working I think at for, one point we were, we were a buck, but then we... You know, we got so many of them that we had to lower what we were paying for them. I think we're paying around twenty five cents a movie now. When I was when I was working there for you know a little bit before I went to Australia, this guy came in. I'll never forget. He had like he had like hundreds of fucking DVD, like oh, yeah. hundreds. And he's like, yeah, I just I don't want them anymore. I'm sick of them. And wife wants them gone. And there were some pretty good ones actually. I think we gave him thirty, but whatever it was, it was like not very much money. Sure. And you're thinking like you know these things probably cost twenty bucks a pop new. When you buy them, 20, 10, 20 bucks a pop. I guess what surprised me wasn't that people would sell us DVDs. It What surprised me was that people would borrow money on DVDs, pay 20% interest a month on <laughs> DVDs, and then pick them back up and take them home. That I didn't realize that people valued their DVD collections. Like, they would want them and back. See, we're, we're going now. Like once the, I see the movie, I'm like, I don't want to see it again. We're going now in, like, probably 20 years. I mean, right, right now, everything's streaming, Netflix, mm-hmm. you know, Apple, whatever, all these, Hulu, sure. uh, Amazon. Yeah, that'll probably fade. The DVDs will probably go away as a... Yeah, I think over time, they're just, you know, because right now when I buy a movie, um, we used to go to Blockbuster, we go buy a DVD, whatever. Now you just go on Apple, click it, buy it. It's in your little library. You yep. got it forever. Right. So, well, no, great podcast, man. I, I, I love talking to you. You're, you're, a, you're a sharp guy. You're, 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 you're one of the, uh, I call you one of the, the, the street smart and book smart guys that are, you don't, you don't meet a lot of folks like that. Well, thanks. Good. I, I I love talking to you, man. It's fun. We should do another one of these later. I, I want to I want to dive more into that that Sarah Palin, city council stuff. Did you work with her a lot? I mean, were you like with her every every meeting? You're talking to her? Or? Um, she because I mean, it's a small town. We grew you, up together. You know, I've known her 
most of my life. Do you know Ella Eid, my friend Ella, or no? I don't. She went know. to high school with her. She, we did a podcast a few weeks ago, but she's from Vermont. They moved there in middle, middle school with her family. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, um, it was an interesting time to be on city council. Like I said, I'd been on the, I'd been working for the legislature. I was really kind of disenfranchised when I, I'd say I was disenfranchised when I came back from working for the legislature. I really was surprised by how much, you know, tit for tat, how much you scratch my back, I'll scratch uh-huh. yours. And I expected a lot more ideological battles where people were oh, like no. going down for what they believed no, in. No, 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 Doesn't no, work. No, no, it was, it was, uh, it was way too much. The people who do that end up just being on the outside because nobody wants to deal with them. But I was with them. I was with Ramona Barnes, Jerry Sanders <laughs> in our little closet in the corner. Um, but, then, but then Ramona became a speaker later. I don't think she became speaker after. Oh, she, she was, was speaker, speaker before? before. Okay, so, okay. All right, okay, so I got it backwards. Yeah, but she was speaker. Yes, she so. was speaker for many years, and then... I heard, man, I heard stories about her. I heard, like, someone told me um, she was real tough, you know? Very. And someone told me, because, right, last session there was a lot of new, in 19, there was a lot of new legislators, and um, some of them would talk, you know, you have the floor session, some of them would just get up and talk. Every time they could talk, they would talk. Every bill, every amendment, every issue, they would talk, and... Um, one in particular, and someone told me this lobbyist said, man, my fucking Ramona Barnes was here. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? They said, when she was speaker, she used to, um, if people would talk too much, she would send them a note. And, and one in particular they remembered, and she sent them a note, and you, know, you could pass notes, all that's how they kind of communicate mm-hmm. on the floor. And um, this person would talk a lot, and they kept standing up, and they passed, she passed them a note, and, and it said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. And that was all it said. That's Ramona. Love that. that that's how she rolled, dude. Yeah, she she was. I've I've heard so many stories. People people. She was respected for sure by everybody. Uh, when Gail, I think it was Gail, that Phillips, took, yeah, took yeah. over the speakership from Ramona. Very first day of session, Gail gavels in. I think I seen Ramona Barnes stand up and say "point of order" like a hundred times, and she had Gail so frazzled. Oh yeah, the, I mean, if, if if you what I learned in this kind of game and and not just politics, but you know if you're on a board or something. Uh, or if you're in any kind Robert's of organization, rules. if you know that shit, if you're if you can master the parla- parliamentarian system and the Roberts rules, you can do fucking all kinds of delay, and you can you can really cause a R- big Ramona disrupt. Barnes was a Roberts rules ninja. Yeah, you can disrupt. You can just basically stop everything if you, if you're good. And at she that. did. I mean, Gail, like I think Gail, the, uh, the night after her first session, spent all night long reading Roberts rules of order, trying to like figure out how she was going to like defend against Ramona at the next meeting. Cause yeah, there's always these, like these, these, these checks and you, know, you can do something and then you, if they say no, or they rule, you can overrule it. You can vote. I mean, there's all these kind of delays tactics you can do. And it's uh, I'll never forget. I was at a Republican. I'm a nonpartisan now, but I was at a Republican years ago meeting and there was something happening and I was a delegate or I was, I was on the committee. And anyways, I, um, I wanted something to be brought up and they, and, and it was really important. It was, I forget what it was, but it was like a very relevant thing based on some discussion and they wouldn't do it. I motioned to bring this up and I think it was to have somebody talk about something that happened and they said, no overruled or chair rules. No. And I said, fuck. And somebody looks at me and they said, they said motion, mo- motion to uh, overrule the chair or, or, or uh, motion to suspend the rules. Cause there was a rule, right? So they go motion to suspend the rules. I'm like, what the hell is that? And this is like a long time ago. And they said, Motion to suspend the rules and, and, and allow the body to. So I said, I, I, I motion to suspend the rules to allow this. And you could tell the guy was like, fuck, because he knew, <laughs> like, you can't just say no, right? So then it's there was a vote. Vo- there was a vote, and it was, I think, a two thirds. So it was high threshold. And everybody it passed. They wanted to hear it. So, so, that, so, so I was able to just because I, somebody told me, 
to we over we suspended the rules for the purpose of this person to talk, and they came up and and I was like, wow, that's when I knew. I was like, man, you got to know this shit. I got to get my handbook out. Yeah, you got to get the book out. Well, anyways, no, great podcast. We'll do it again. Um, thanks, yeah, good, good, good talking to you. Always, always a fan. Always like talking to you. So, and awesome. thanks for all the support over the years. You've, you've been one of my guys. So, oh man, appreciate that. All right, folks. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, uh, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.